your love's like oxygen. Sorry, Jack, I, I just them, had that song in my head. Tell them what you just said to me about uh, about how you about how you felt during that whole two minute movie mile. Um, I felt like I was on the Nickelodeon show Double Dare. Yeah, doing the physical <laughs> challenge. You know, when you have like the the clock running and you have to go through all that like Nickelodeon slime and like other goop and stuff. Or it's like Legends of the Hidden Temple. When well, they, that too. Yeah. When 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 they're running through that maze at the end. I'm on Team Barracuda. You're, you're about to you're about to finish talking about uh, the Jinx when all of a sudden a temple guard tackles you. <laughs> <laughs> we need like an Omec. <laughs> Corey can be our Omec. That's true. It's like, what do you say, Omec? Mm, you go. <laughs> I forget what he used to say, but I loved Omec. O- Omec was full of one-liners, like "You go, girl." Yeah, he and... had stuff like that. Like he he's like an old like. He's an old, like, statue from the old Legend of the Hidden Temple era. But I don't know what era he's Uh, Don't worry about it. Anyway, yeah, pretty intense. I like this. I like this. So now we're going to move on to our New Year's movies. I'm going to go first because Jack went first. And we like to keep these things balanced. Yeah, we like balance here. I was originally going to watch Bicycle Thieves, but Jack's stupid DVD didn't work. So. I had to go with my next one, which was Beauty and the Beast, directed by Jean Cocteau. Cocteau, yes. Now, the 1946 is... original adaptation. That makes me wonder, because I mean, 1946 is a French film, and somehow the war did not interfere with the making of this film. Hmm. Uh, well, it could have. Actually, that's a good question. I'd like to actually look into that, because it's very possible that... It probably did I mean, but it's in the some same thing way. With Bicycle Thieves. Bicycle Thieves is an Italian film from 1945. It's weird how anybody in Europe was making films during this time when everything was getting bombed out, but that's beside the point. All right, so Beauty and the Beast is about. Wait a minute. I want to ask you a question, Jack. What's up? All right, you know the opening credits from Beauty and the Beast? Um, the from the October. Yes. I don't remember them it's that as well. people writing them on a chalkboard. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Now, now what did you think was the significance of that? Why why the whole chalkboard thing? Like, showing actual people, you know, their faces and everything, writing the, writing out the title of the movie or and the names of the actors on the chalkboard and then just erasing it. Um, I think, well, firstly, because it's just different, um, but also the fact that um, maybe to give the sort of illusion like as if you're in school i don't know go on and you know you're in school and you're learning something but you know this is actually going to be like something fun and magical and uh it's it's like you're being taught something but it's important so maybe it is like a hearkening back to to uh that sort of school environment when you're much younger yeah yeah a little bit like you know you're 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 a kid in class i guess you could say that's an interesting one. That's sort of well. I'm also reminded of um, when uh, when the opening credits for Fahrenheit 451, uh, Ferenc Truffaut didn't have any text on the screen. He actually had somebody narrating the opening credits. Yeah, I remember that too. And they pointed that out when I first saw it. And I think basically that's because you know they live in a world without printed word. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, I had this feeling that it was. Oh, I should mention, by the way, that there was there was something that was affected from the war, that they actually had to use different film stocks during the making of the film because it was hard to get 
like consistent film stocks after the war. Uh, but he said, but Cocteau said that he thought that maybe add to the poetic effect with visual, different visual textures or something. All right. The thing about the opening credits with me was, it seems like it's, it's this weird sort of peeling back of the curtain where you, where you don't enter the fantastic realm of the movie, but instead you, during those opening credits, you, um, when you're talking about the actor and the director, yeah, it's still you're seeing people working. You're not you're not seeing like a sort of sparkly uh, credit sequence like you would in a Disney film or something yeah. like that. Uh, it's it's like a, a prelude before like to clearly delineate between the moment of the movie. You keep the credits in the realm of the of reality, yeah, and then you move on to the to the fantasy, which becomes the body of the film. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, the fact that, you know, a blackboard is very, like, concrete. You're writing things basically on a wall. There's nothing fantastic about it. No, no, there's not. Yeah. So maybe that was sort of the contrast that, you know, I, I, if I was a little kid watching the movie, though, I'd be a little nervous with that. I'd be like, oh, I'm in school now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, of course, very quickly Cocteau goes into a very like poetic uh, frame of filmmaking. I think. Right. So beauty and the beast is about, hold on again. Let's talk about another thing <laughs> before the movie even starts. After we've had that opening credit sequence, there is a prologue hmm. where Jean Cocteau talks about, uh, basically going back to a time, uh, talking well, about well, how once children, upon a time. Yeah, but he says there was a time people children will believe anything that that the viewer can expect anything. Well, not not just that, but like children will believe that if someone steals a rose, then 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 that causes trouble, or that a person's claw smokes when they when they kill somebody, or that uh, or that people can be enchanted. And he gives the audience a challenge, mm. which is to. Take yourself, uh, take yourself back to what it was like being the, a kid, to that sort of mindset, and then let me begin with the magic words, "Once upon a time." Okay, yeah, and I think that's brilliant. Yeah, and it's the one of the few moments I've ever seen where in a movie, a movie, the movie doesn't take a chance mm. because it's it's not uh, it's not trying to conform itself to an audience's expectations or what people they think people want to see it's telling the audience to take a chance yeah uh saying this is the movie and you can enjoy it if you take yourself back well i think you you know maybe what he thought of was that you know people who might be coming to see a movie because john cocteau at that time he had done Mostly a lot of surrealist stuff. Like he made another I know movie. his name because there's a movie that's on my list that I want to see called Blood of a Poet. Blood of a Poet was something that I saw when I was really early in college. And, you know, I was just getting in, really into poetry and surrealism. It was around the time, I think, that I saw Unchin Andalou. Yeah, and that's and, one of my top five films. So this yeah, seems and like right up my Blood alley. of a Poet is very surreal, but like... Uh, it's like a long form, like it's not it's not a feature, but it's not a short. It's in the middle ground, and it ha it's it's really worth checking well, out. Well, surrealist films can't really can't really hold themselves up in feature length. I think I have to think that maybe the opening of Beauty of the Beast, in the way Cocteau maybe was doing it, 
maybe almost more for himself than even for the audience. Maybe he <laughs> needed to get in that mindset so that he could do this project. Because mm. uh, he's done other films. Like, he did Orpheus. Uh You've ever, you've heard the story of Orpheus. I know right? the story of Orpheus. Yeah. Yeah, and you know he's done stuff like that. He was mostly a poet, um, but uh, poets of cinema. Yes. Uh, so anyway, about this movie, so, I mean, Beauty a lot of you should know. Hopefully, the story of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, the story of Beauty and the Beast. This is the uh, this is a more uh, faithful retelling of the story. So if you're familiar with the Disney version, let me track back a little bit. Uh, there's a family that lives in France. They It's Belle, her father, her brother, and her two sisters. Her two sisters, of course, are snobs. Uh, and her brother is a scoundrel and a, and a layabout. And her, their fa- the family's fallen on hard times, so the father goes on a business trip. Uh, and nothing happens, and he comes back, and he's lost, and he gets to this beast ca- to this castle which is the beast castle and he's treated very well but on the way his way out he takes a rose from the garden and the beast is is pissed because his rose the roses are his favorite thing and he says all right i'm either going to kill you or you're going to send one of your daughters to my castle so i'll kill her and bell volunteers and she goes to live with the beast uh and then it goes basically from there she falls in love yeah um now what we should say is that they you know this is 1946 but they still you know, from my recollection, they put a lot of work into the sets. They put a lot of work into the sets and the special effects. Yeah, that was the thing about uh, John Cocteau. He was actually, of all the of all the surrealist directors, he was really fascinated with special effects. Yeah, and it's uh, it's amazing how much effort he put into his special effects. Yeah, considering the time period, you'd think like all you had for special effects back then was a bunch of string and maybe some mirrors. But no, these are legit special effects. There are there are there's a hearth, mm-hmm. a fireplace that has heads carved into the stone, and the heads turn and look at people. There are also a lot of minor touches in the forest too. Yes, like the branches they move back, mm-hmm. and it's those minor touches that really got my attention. Yeah, because they're such simple techniques, and you can look at them and say, "Oh, this is probably how it was done." But when you're watching them the first time, they catch you by surprise. There's uh. The Beast has a horse that takes people wherever they need to go, mm. and Be- that's how Belle gets to his castle. And as she's mounting the horse, you notice glitter in his mane and on his coat. Mm. I don't remember that. To make him really seem like a magical horse. <laughs> and he and I thought and I only caught it briefly and I had to rewind the movie to uh to see it again. And yeah, it was there. Uh and when Belle first gets to the castle, there's the, there are these sequences where she's moving in slow motion. Yeah. And there's this one scene where she just glides across the floor. Mm. Like, we're getting you the real sense that she's entering an enchanted place. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and like you're actually being like, getting the impression as a viewer being swept away with her. Yeah. Almost. And, and there are also the Beast's makeup. It's a guy in makeup, but it's very well done. Like and it even holds up in extreme close-ups. You see his face, and you get like so close to him, and you and it's all little individual hairs covering his face, and you can see his nose, and and you know his eyes are fine. And there's a scene where like he has this change in mood, and his ears go back like oh, a yeah. cat. Mm-hmm. And I that was another thing. I was like, wait, did his ears just go back? <laughs> I rewound the thing to watch it again. Instant replay. <laughs> yes. Um. 
Yeah, there's a lot of like evocative timing and grace to these effects. And the and the other special effects shots comes towards the end where Belle is visiting her sisters and she takes off a pearl necklace to give to her sister. Oh yeah. And the sister takes it and it's just like this smoldering bit of trash and she drops it and as she drops it it turns back into a pearl necklace again. Oh yeah. And I and that's another thing. I went, "What? I didn't even <laughs> see how it happened." <laughs> there's a lot of real trickery that actually does you know it's meant to really take you in and let me ask you this what did you think about how they did the uh, beast as like a character or... well more like the look because i've actually heard different things i've heard people who love how the beast looks and then like people like our friend matt rosen who like you know there's all this build-up to get to the beast and then like when all of a sudden he turns around and you see him it's just like oh that's it well i don't think it was meant to be a shock moment but I love the makeup. I do too. I think that they're like it fits the actor who's playing him, John Murray. Yeah, is his name. Uh, clearly they're limited by by the technology the of their time. But it's great makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you're never looking at him saying like, "Oh, there's the seam in his costume," or "There's the there's the crappy sort of latex stuck to his face." Yeah. No, you you believe him. You believe that he's a beast. And you and you see the fur on his on his face, and you see his claws and the, and the way he looks at himself. Yeah. And I think maybe that comes down to the actor too, because the actor was great. He had a great gravelly voice speaking mm. in French, which yeah. really really draws you in. How much time do we have? Um, we still have time. We have like uh, three four minutes. Awesome. And you still have a little bit of time. So, um, compared to the Disney movie. Well, the Disney movie stands like stands on its own terms. It's uh, it's a really great adaptation. Sure, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Like, I almost look at also the way that um, when Disney did their Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, that was its own thing. Um, whereas though, you, you know, wouldn't you look compare back... that to Charles Lawton. In the, oh no, no. The, the Charles Notre Lawton Dame. one is really dark. <laughs> I remember I saw that when I was a little too when I, I wouldn't say I was, I was too young for it, but like when I watched it, I was just like. Wow, they're not kidding around with this one. No. Um, but uh, it's, do you think there's this, really no comparison? Do you think that this movie... Here is a question that I actually posed to myself when I wrote my original review of this. This is going back like a long time ago. But do you think this is like suitable for children? Well... It's, it's questionable to me because I think that children should be exposed to dark things sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about The Secret of Nim, and that is... You know, for kids, even though it is... It has shades of darkness. Yeah. But it's not a dark movie. <clears throat> no, yeah. Um, it's a fantasy that deals with serious themes. Uh, this is. I don't similar. think Beauty and the Beast deals with anything really serious. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's it's bound strictly within fantasy. And I don't think there's, mu- there's much of a... Uh, there, there's much of a darkness to it. Okay. It's... But, but there's nothing in this film that... Uh, kid can't see no i think the one thing that would maybe sway them are well the two things are that it's black and white and you know it's french and subtitles yeah you know i mean that's why you know you complain about the studio ghibli movies being in english but a lot of kids might not be able to sit for lots of subtitle japanese i'll give you that uh but i think again that cocteau meant this for an adult audience yeah that's the thing it's it has his his opening clearly states that that this that this is what children believe and you can believe what children believe Mm -hmm. so let's uh 
but uh, it's a be- it's a beautiful movie. It, it is, is a very it's a pretty beautiful movie for its time. I think it holds up in a lot of ways. It does. It's a very faithful ad- it's a very faithful retelling yeah. of the original fairy tale. Yeah, and I, th- I think it- that like one of the reasons I wanted you to watch it was because I know you like fairy tale stories right. and that type of literature and also how it's brought to film. And I thought that this was one of those real key cornerstone movies that a person like you should see. It's great though. Uh, I and those and the special effects Mm. Uh, they just knocked you out, didn't they? They did. They they they, they pummeled you into wide smiled uh, submission. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, I won't get it out of my head. There will be images that stay with me for a very long time. So thank you, okay. Jack. Okay, and I'll just end that there. We were just shy of fifteen minutes, although yeah. if we accidentally went over it, I apologize. Uh, I don't apologize. I regret nothing. I regret nothing. All right, Jack. So it's your turn. Mm. I would like to know what movie it is that you picked for my list this week. Well, I'll start off by saying just three words to you, Mr. Andrew. Klaatu Barada Nikto. Why don't you go back to where you came from, you foreigner? Uh, or as Ash in, in Army of Darkness would say, Klaatu Varada. <coughs> okay. We're all good. <laughs> I love that moment. Uh, no, uh, for I watched... those of us who don't know what you're talking about, why don't you mention the title? This is the original Robert Wise directed The Day the Earth Stood Still. Robert Wise, that man got around. He uh, West Side Story, The Haunting, one of my favorites. The Sound of Music. The, yeah, and and this, you know, a, a seminal Star, Star Trek, the motion picture, which maybe I shouldn't bring that up, but well, he got around. I mean, and this is looked at as um, one of the you know seminal science fiction films, basically. Even though it was originally made as a B movie, and that yeah. was something I could kind of tell watching it. But to, to kind of tell what this movie's about, in case. Uh, you don't know, um, and maybe, maybe or maybe not, you've seen the. Keanu but wait, Jack. The opening credits feature a science fiction staple of science fiction music, and mm. please tell us who, what this instrument well, is. Well, Bernard Herrmann does the score, and if I remember correctly, the score over the opening credits makes it sound like it's like a, a flying saucer. Yes. Flying around. Now, what is uh, it's basically? I think one of the first films, like sci-fi films, yeah. to use mm-hmm. a theremin. Yeah. Okay, that was the now. For those of you who don't know what a theremin is, it's a musical instrument that you play but not, but you don't touch. It's mm. like two bars that are at a right angle, and there's a magnetic field between them. And by putting your hand in a certain place with between these bars, you can create musical tones. Yeah. And so this is the thing that makes the yeah noise that you hear in so many science fiction films. Yeah, and that was, I guess, uh, one of the things we can thank Bernard Herrmann for as a, as a composer. Um, I, you're welcome in his stead. Yes. Um, so what this movie is about is. Uh, you know, there's a flying saucer coming to Earth, and the movie doesn't waste any time. It goes right into that. Uh, it lands you know, right in the middle of Washington D.C. It lands right in the middle of Washington D.C. Um, there's no, there's no build-up for it, which is something actually I'm going to get to in a there's moment. There's no guy at SETI playing golf and being like, "Hey, you guys got to hear this." Yeah, you know, you immediately Robert Day. Wise, who originally also, by the way, edited uh, Citizen Kane. Um, you don't say. Mm-hmm. That's where he got his start. And some people also blame him for wrecking Magnificent Ambersons. But that's another argument altogether. <laughs> um, this, uh, what happens is uh, a ship comes down to Earth, 
and um, you know everybody gathers around. They're all freaking out. Uh, what I was about to say is Robert Wise sets up a montage of all the news outlets responding to it, and uh, you know people running uh, to to check it out. And the ship opens up, and out comes a a man. Or a person who looks not well. Is he in a spacesuit? He I'm is in remember. a spacesuit. He is in a spacesuit, um, but he is injured because you know, as we usually see in sci-fi movies, brawn triumphs over brain. Unfortunately, a lot of the, the time. The military always shoots first. Yeah, the military always shoots first. Next questions later, and so they shoot this guy, um, and then all, then I think it's then that Gort comes out. Yes. Yeah, the robot Gort, who is one of those essential. Uh, you know, characters in sci-fi just because he, of how he looks. He's practically not even a character. He does and says nothing, so he's practically a prop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, you know, but he's he, probably he the most no famous doubt. prop in sci-fi history. Yeah, one of the most famous. Um, and he's a guardian robot who who protects this this guy. Yeah. Now, what happens is is uh, this guy is injured, but he's taken into a, a military hospital, and he heals in, incredibly quickly. Um, and, you know, they take off his mask, and it turns out he's this guy named Klaatu. And he tries to explain to people, I'm here because we have seen what you people have been doing. We know that you are building, you know, weapons of mass destruction. That uh, if you don't stop what you're doing, you're going to destroy yourselves. Probably. Yeah. Uh, very much probably. Um, but, of course, no one wants to really listen to that at first. Uh, so he leaves this military base, and he finds this family uh, in nearby, in the city of Washington, where he disguises himself as, quote, Mr. Carpenter. He, he basically just looks like a regular person. Yeah. I, uh, now, so he can blend in really easily. I wanted to ask you about this really fast, though. So I don't know if I got this a little bit, maybe... I don't know if I got this. Maybe I'm off on this, but is Cloud Two supposed to kind of be like Jesus? That th there is a, a bit lot of a parallel of that symbolism there. Yeah, he comes, he to, comes us to, from try... the sky to teach everybody a lesson, and he gets persecuted for it. And he's Mr. Carpenter. Well, <laughs> you know, you actually have a very good. I point. think that they knew what they were doing with that. Yeah, so it's um, a, it's a Jesus. Parable, but he I'd he say. comes he comes to this family and they don't really you know he he pretends he's this guy and you know of course everyone's still reacting. <laughs> and he went on to found the carpenters. <laughs> he was he's he only was the just, one who didn't die. He's from only just begun. Himself. He's only just begun to live. Um, so. Uh, he uh, Patricia Neal is uh, the mother in this family, and she also has a little this little boy, and um. Klaatu befriends him. Who's his, what's his name? Oh, Klaatu befriends him. Yes, and the boy takes him around the city and shows him some things. Um, one one moment I found interesting, like I called in my title for my review, I called this movie uh, "Mr. Klaatu Goes to Washington" because <laughs> I mean he goes to the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. You know, and just like in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, our character goes to Lincoln the, Memorial. And they read the, the Gettysburg Address, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, what happens is Klaatu wants to see, you know, the, the most brilliant person around. And so the kid takes him to this professor. I forget his name. I don't have it in my notes. But, you know, this guy is, you know, he's not a real person, but he's, you know, in this movie, he's supposed to be like this professor who... Can try he's and, an Einstein stand-in. He's supposed to be re representing in the movie intelligence, like actual human thought. Like he's a brilliant mathematician, and like of course, Klaatu looks at his blackboard and is like, 
Oh, I've already seen it. I can solve this. Yeah. <laughs> goodwill hunting. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and so the movie just kind of follows how Klaatu is trying to get people's attention. And, you know, again, but the military just wants to capture him. And they think that he's, you know, what if there are more, maybe they don't know whether there are more spaceships coming. Is this ship going to destroy people? But of course they're not listening to him. Yeah. So what you have with this movie, I mean, what I got, of course, is that um, you have one of the few, few like a handful of sci-fi movies that is actually addressing, you know, actually the trying to. The time. Well, well, there's that, but I mean, also, usually when you have people from outer space coming, it's invading, and they're going to destroy the planet, War of yeah. the Worlds, invaders from Mars. You know, it goes past how we usually see these invaders. You know, and it's it's not just admirable; it is inspiring if you think about it. The fact that you do have a movie that's trying to be hopeful. Um, you know, I do you have a favorite scene? Mm, I, I should have asked you about your favorite scene in Beauty and the Beast, but I think we no sort of went it. over them. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I th- you know what? I actually really like the scene where uh, Patricia Neal is. Uh, I think she's following Klaatu back because he goes back to his ship and, you know, and she, and he's actually told uh, Patricia Neal's character, you know, the only way that you can stop Gort, you know, he might try to hurt you is if you say to to him, Klaatu Varada Nikto. Yeah. And this whole sequence, there's no dialogue and there's a lot of suspense as she's following him. He, he you know, cause she doesn't know for sure that he's the spaceman, but she, she has her suspicions. And then she sees him going to the ship and she's like, Oh my God. But you know, Gort is coming at her. She says the words and there's a moment where did it work? Yeah. You, you don't know for sure. And then luckily it does work. And then she goes on the ship. I like that scene a lot. Um, because of there was no dialogue, you're just watching this thing happen. Yeah, a lot of show don't tell. Um, so I like this movie. I, I did like it quite a bit. I, um, to me, when I watched this movie, how I sort of took it in was that it's kind of like to the sci- science fiction film genre as High Noon was to the western. It's the movie that people can watch, even if, or particularly if they don't particularly like movies in that genre. Yeah. You know, like somebody could watch High Noon even if they don't like westerns. You could watch The Day the Earth Stood Still even if you usually don't like science fiction movies. Yeah. Even though it has some of those tropes, and again, it has the theremin. Um. <laughs> but the thing that I think is really important about this and why I chose it is because... Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's an all-time classic. It yes, was, but the reason it is an all-time classic is because it introduced a lot of the tropes that... Uh, that we'd see later. I mean, I think hmm. I'd say probably half of the episodes of the Twilight Zone that we ever got the Twilight... took something away from from this film. The, the Twilight Zone, and you know what? I also got a little bit, and it made me kind of just want to watch the series instead. Was Doctor Who? Because hmm. yeah. in Doctor Who, what you have is this man who is a, is is an alien, but he appears as a man. He goes around to different places. And tries to bring some understanding, especially to, to civilizations that are in turmoil, that are often warring, they're clashing. And yeah, the doctor to... and the doctor's used to the guy they're going like, Hold on, hold on. Let's bring some sense here. Yeah. Let's let's calm down. Just now put you on want the this. 3D glasses and we'll figure this all out. Yeah. yeah. And I mean that's not every episode, but I mean a lot of Doctor Who, you know, he's coming to Earth and there are these things happening in time. 
and you know it deals with I mean, the conflicts of the are, era. He and Klaatu are cut from the same cloth. They're they're peaceful people. They're... I think I might like Doctor Who a little bit. More. Well, well, Doctor Who is <laughs> he's doctor, a little bit more. The he's... Doctor has been has been refined through several decades. Yes, of television. yeah. I and, guess I guess and... the doctors that I like, I should say. <laughs> I know there are a lot of different doctors. But I... this isn't about Doctor Who. No, no, but, no. I but, mean, Klaatu but let's is... talk about. The, but the influence of the day the Earth stood still is something that we've all felt. It's one of those oh, movies sure. where even if you haven't seen it like 2001 or star wars if somehow you lived on this world without, without this star wars. without this movie we wouldn't have uh, close encounters and that was very important to me yeah because i think close close encounters is my favorite science fiction film right, but there are films that just like that that just cut through everything and they they continually get referenced in television and other movies even well, if... star did we mention star trek no there's a little bit of that possibly too yeah you're Maybe right. the inklings of it, yes. you could say. Again, the, the whole idea of it's logic, people, brain, brain versus brawn. It's not Flash Gordon. No, uh, no, it's not Flash Gordon. Wrestling uh, Venusian apes or anything. It's, it, you know, and just like how I mentioned High Noon also because if that movie was addressing something that was happening. It was about the blacklist. This is about nuclear annihilation, which yeah. was you know, a big concern for people who were paying attention. I mean, at that time, you still had... Or at least it was the start of Duck and Cover. Yeah, I mean it's the very <laughs> beginning, and it's and you don't even have to wait till the '60s to get the to get the notion that we're really on a path that we don't that it's a, it's like a fifty-fifty chance. Yeah, um, and I, uh, and even to think about it so early uh, is is uh, I don't want to say. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's it's original. For its time. It does have an originality. I mean, it's not like, you know, I mean, the one thing that sets it apart, too, is just the fact that, you know, it was, it was, even though it had kind of a B budget, it was the first science fiction film made by a major studio at that time. Like, before that, I mean, you started to have kind of the flood of movies, but they were all B level. They were all by low level producers. Um, And there might even been later movies that I liked more from the 50s, like uh, Forbidden Planet. Was mm-hmm. one which also had Ro- a Robbie the Robot. Um, if I have two little chrisms of the movie, Robbie the Robot and Leslie Nielsen. That's true, Leslie Nielsen. Um, I I thought there are times where there's like I think that it, I might have actually liked just maybe even just a minute of build up before like the alien, the ship landed. I know they had to get to it right away, but it felt like Wise didn't give all that much time for for it before the ship coming to Earth. And maybe that might be a plus for some that you know you don't waste time you get right to it. But things just happen quickly in this film, so quickly, um, you know. And like the politicians, the politicians in the military, or you know, they they don't they they maybe talk things out a little bit, but they immediately go to all right, we gotta get this guy. Make sure you pull up all perimeters. Nobody actually thinks, which maybe is part of the point. The yeah. only people who are real characters of consequence are this family and Klaatu. Yeah. Um, also, how do you feel about Michael Rennie? He as Klaatu. He was very he's, he was he's very, very measured, very subdued. He's very I here's my pro like and he he's seems a, he was genuinely, a, and he seems genuinely curious when he's among other people. Oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. Like and he was good also in his final monologue. Uh, you know, when he's addressing, you know, humanity, yeah. you know, you live in peace or die. Yeah. Um not I, a threat, just saying. Yeah, yeah, like the like the license plate um, in New Hampshire. <laughs> Live free or die. Um, <laughs> These that. are not polite suggestions. Yes, 
I sometimes found him a little flat, and I know that some that was that was kind of how he was supposed to be, but mm. I just kind of found he had a lack of personality. I mean, it's telling that the actor who played him in the remake was uh, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> And I think Michael Rennie might have a little more personality than Keanu Reeves, possibly. Definitely. Although I know Keanu Reeves, like, I never saw the full remake, but I saw most of it one day was I was at the laundromat. And I could tell, like, all they were really trying to do was pump it up with special effects, which kind of loses the point of right, what the original seconds, was doing. Um, so I'm glad I watched this movie. Is it my favorite sci-fi movie of the 50s? No, but it is an essential classic. And, yeah, go Robert Wise. All right, great. Well... Those are our New Year's. That's our New Year's movie list selections for these two weeks. Uh, check them out if you want. There are some really great films here that, that you might not even have even heard of. Uh, so give them a try. If yeah, you like. just just give them a sample. Just like you know, give them a little nosh. You know, it's and, yeah, like, and, it's like when I go to my like when I go to my uh, sometimes when I go to my dad's uh, for like a like a Passover or like a dinner or something. Like his wife will have uh, liver. Yeah. And chopped liver. And I don't like chopped liver, but they just tell me, just try it. Just try it and see if you like it. And I'm like, okay. All right, this isn't that bad. Right. But Although I don't eat regularly. <laughs> so movies are chopped liver. Well, well. anyway. I we'll... hope this movie, these movies are better than chopped liver, but you get my point, hopefully. Uh, so we'll have links to trailers and clips at sure. Jack's uh, Facebook page, well, which we'll is sh- uh, what? Well, if you go to facebook.com slash wages of cinema... Uh, actually, it might be the Wages of Cinema podcast. Let me check on that for sure. I don't want and anybody you... going to a site and all of a sudden, you know, oh, it's facebook.com slash Wages of Cinema. And if you have thoughts on these movies, if you have movies that you want us to see, or uh, if you have questions, uh, just send it to them. Give us a comment. Rate us on iTunes, please. Because we're on iTunes now. Did you know that? Yes, uh, I believe uh, last time we were on, I mentioned that. But yes, subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate us, write a review. Share it with your friends, if you would, please. And uh, you can also uh, send me messages on Twitter. I'm at Twitter at Jack Gattinella. Um, And uh, yeah, and uh, so let's take a little break, and we'll come back with our main segment, where we're facing uh, with the summer of 2015.